0: Danielle, I can't believe that we have over a million downloads on our podcast. And I think back to when we started the podcast and you were like, Whitney, we have to do a podcast. And I'm like, I don't think we can add one more thing onto our list of to-dos and creations. And you convinced me because we were going to be able to talk to some of the most Interesting, powerful minds on the planet. People who are studying everything from antioxidants, metabolism, to the gut microbiome and spirit and how the mind connects to it all. Yeah, it's been a really reaffirming
1: experience, hasn't it? And we come home to this place of food as medicine. I know we each kind of have our own stories on how food became medicine. And if you haven't heard our stories, it's the first episode of the Saqqara podcast. The food that we create here at Saqqara is designed to transform your gut and your microbiome health. And when you do that, you change everything about who you are. You change your mental health. You change your physical health. You change your spiritual health. You change your cellular health. As you like to say, Whitney, what you eat becomes what you are.
0: Like your body is made up of the things that you eat and drink and think. And what you've learned by listening to our Sakara podcast is that that diversity of ingredients that you're getting into your body changes the diversity of bacteria in your gut, which is the epicenter of your health. And it supports your total body health, not just today, but into the future. And so I want to invite you, if you haven't tried Sakara before, you deserve to feel good. You deserve to feel nourished in your body. And we are here to help you do that. You can find more details and how to customize your own plan on sakara.com, and enjoy 20% off your first order of our Sakara Signature Nutrition Program with code POD. That's code P-O-D at checkout. For 20% off your first order. Order now. At Sakara, we're on a mission to give you the tools that empower you to be in the driver's seat of your own health so that you can be the person you want to be and live the life that you want to live through all stages of your life. One of those stages is menopause. And one of the ways that we can empower ourselves is through information. This can prove tricky, however, as so few medical professionals have any training around this specific hormonal phase that so many women come to navigate. That's why we asked our dear friend, Dr. Aviva Ram, back on the Sakar Life podcast to discuss some of the tools available to help us take charge of our health through menopause. As a refresher from her first two appearances, Dr. Aviva Ram is a Yale-trained, board-certified family physician, midwife, and president of the American Herbalist Guild. She's a prolific author on women's well-being of all stages of life. Her most recent book, Hormone Intelligence, offers actionable ways to optimize your hormone health and feel truly at home in your body. In this episode, we dig into the science driving common symptoms of menopause, as well as the emotional reckoning many women experience as they enter it, and why she believes that this life stage is not one of self-minimization, but instead one of great self-expansion. Please welcome back Dr. Aviva Ram. Hi, Dr. Aviva. We
1: are so happy to have you back for, I think, the third time on the Saqqara Life Podcast. I think it is. I love my beautiful friends. I think you can tell we love you so much. I love you both so much, too. You can tell, and now our listeners can tell as well. So you know that we always start off with a question around mission, but since this is your third time What's coming up for me is wondering, in the last year and a half, what's changed for you about your work and the work you're wanting to put out in the world or the gift you're wanting to give women? Wow,
2: that's such a great question. So for me, I'm 57. I was actually, I think, 10 years or 12 years younger when we first met. And what's really happening for me in my life right now is this sense of wanting everything I do to be about legacy. Not that I'm going anywhere, I'm not planning on checking out anywhere for a very, very long time. But like (laughs) when I think about legacy, it puts me in a mind space of what is the bigger contribution I'm making? And it reminds me to sort of stay out of ego and urgency and is this good enough? And any of the worries that often come up when we're trying to do something big. So that's sort of the meta. For me, it's around legacy. And with my work, you know, it's always this deep commitment to women's health. But my two big areas of focus right now are maternal health and menopause. And for the biggest reasons that women are struggling so much with maternal mental health, we know the maternal mortality and morbidity has been going up. So using my skills and my experiences and 40 years now of work around midwifery and medicine to make a difference in that. And then also with menopause, there are some interesting parallels between birth and obstetrics and midwifery and menopause in the way our culture is in that these are like really major arcs of our lives. Like we're making these huge transformations and they're completely natural. I mean, yes, stuff can come up that Requires a medical intervention that may not make it feel like it's natural, but these are natural evolutionary stages in our lives, but they're so medicalized. And in both of these different stages, women are really not heard, not seen, not given the care that we deserve and need. And often the answers are strictly medical answers. And there are also areas of our lives that as women, we largely internalize as medical problems. So whether it's we're pregnant and we're fearful of everything or planning for everything to go wrong, or whether we're in menopause and feel like we're buying into this cultural anti-aging model because we shouldn't get older. And I'm not opposed to hormone therapy at all, but everything is like, oh, the best thing you can do is hormone therapy. So really focusing on these places that women feel unseen, unheard. And for me, the way I address those is through creating courses and online content, my medical practice where I see patients one-on-one, and of course, writing books.
0: And we'll definitely want to dig into... Your thoughts around things like hormone replacement therapy, the HRT. But yeah, I want to dig into menopause today with you deeper. Just think it's kind of becoming a hot topic, which is really exciting. It's having a bit of a moment. And it's having a moment because people weren't talking about it enough before that this generation is moving into menopause saying, What's going on? What's happening in my body? What can I do about it? Absolutely. What are you excited about with menopause?
2: Well, first of all, like the numbers of women who are going into menopause. So we know that historically women purchase, if you will, more health care than anyone else, right? We purchase more health care than men. So we're the ones getting the supplements primarily. We're the ones going to the integrative practitioners, the herbalists, and naturopaths, much more than men. And even when we're in relationship with men, whether it's your father, your brother, or your partner, we're more likely to get them to go to get the medical care. So we're still the ones parlaying it. So the number of women going into menopause with the sort of spending power that drives cultural shift around healthcare, both wellness and conventional medicine, is staggering. And it's like hundreds of billions of dollar industry. So that is really exciting in the sense that women are really owning our voices in a way that's never happened before. We're taking menopause out of the closet. You know, we're basically saying this is not some dirty little secret and aging is phenomenal. So physicians are having to respond Companies are having to respond with products that meet the needs of menopausal women. Workplaces are having to respond. The UK, for example, just started giving a menopause leave for women who need menopause timeout. You know, we're seeing this happen with menstrual health as well, like premenstrual or period days off. And it's not saying these are sickness days. These are not, you know, like I'm ill and I need a sick day. It's like, I've got this thing happening in my body and it needs attention. I need to give it more attention to myself. So there's this groundswell of economic and social and intellectual power from women saying, we're not having this topic be taboo anymore. We're not ignoring our symptoms anymore. We're not ignoring our life stages anymore. And we're not pretending that we don't want to get older. I mean, it's not like we're all kumbaya, oh, my face looks different or my hair isn't what it used to be. But it's more like I have XYZ years of lived experience and that's really powerful and I'm owning that. I would say the flip side is the risk is that because it is a potential cash cow, there is a lot of potential for people to provide products that don't work, misleading information. So as women, we also need to be aware of marketing that's really deeply targeted us around weight loss, around aging, around hair thickening products, around cosmetics and things like that.
1: And can you walk me through what are... And I use air quotations here, normal symptoms of perimenopause and menopause. And are the normal symptoms things you can and should seek help for? Or are there non-normal symptoms that then you should seek help for? Yeah, great question. So to clarify for everyone who
2: is listening, so we're all on the same page with terms, perimenopause is this 8 to 10-year period leading up to menopause. And menopause is defined as the one-year mark after your last period. So if your last period was September of 2022 and you haven't had a period since then, you're now in menopause. And then postmenopause is a certain number of years after menopause. So in that time of perimenopause and menopause, we can have what I call signs of menopause or symptoms. And the way I differentiate signs, because I could tell... Danielle, you were like, what? Air quotes, I don't really want to call it symptoms because we think of symptoms as an illness or disease, right? Yeah. So I say, okay, there are these natural, normal signs that happen. But when those signs get uncomfortable, we can start to see them as symptoms. And then there are actual symptoms that can happen. So the signs of perimenopause and menopause, and it's kind of like a fine line because they kind of blur into each other, the difference being you're either still getting your period or not anymore. In perimenopause, women may notice even a few years before they stop getting their periods that their periods, maybe they skip a few periods or their periods become irregular. Maybe they have a longer gap between one period and the next or maybe then the next cycle it's like, three weeks or they bleed twice that month. And maybe they're noticing they're a little bit more irritable or a little less tolerant of BS or their sleep is getting a little wonky, like maybe they're waking up sometimes in the night. And then as we get closer to that time of menopause, you might start to notice those symptoms get more exaggerated. You may go longer, like three or four months without a period. And then you're like, oh, maybe I am in menopause. And then it comes back. And then you might start noticing hot flashes, and you may have mild ones or a lot of them. You may have some noticeable changes in your vaginal discharge or odor, or you may start to get vaginal dryness. So all of these things are happening because estradiol, the predominant estrogen we've had most of our lives, is starting to decline. And so... Women also may notice some subtle brain fog, like, oh, what was I just about to say? Or, hello, I just walked into that room. What was I getting? All of these are normal. So a little bit of hot flashes, a little bit of vaginal dryness. Okay, maybe a little bit of brain fog, especially if you're having a little bit of sleep disturbance, a little bit of irritability, maybe a little bit of shift in your libido. It's really normal to have some hair loss for a certain percentage of women. It's normal to notice some changes in your facial structure. and. None of these are necessarily welcome, but they're par for the course of these changes happening as estrogen declines. But if you're having a lot of hot flashes, like they're waking you up multiple times a night, you're really bothered by them multiple times a day. One, that can make you really uncomfortable if they're happening multiple times a night, that can affect your sleep. When your sleep goes down, your weight can go up, your inflammation can go up, your cravings and your irritability and all those things go up. So if you're having any aches and pains, those will be worse if you're tired. So it's all kind of a vicious cycle. But we also know, for example, that women who have much more severe hot flashes, they're much more frequent or they're much more intense, do actually have a higher risk of potentially having heart disease and breast cancer and even dementia down the road. So in my book, Hormone Intelligence, I talk about our menstrual cycles being our sixth vital sign, right? They give us information about our health and our bodies and can be predictive of our long-term health. So the symptoms and signs that we're getting in perimenopause and menopause are also a sixth vital sign. Because even though menopause is the end of our periods, for most women it's happening somewhere between 45 and 53 or 54. You still have like 30 or more years of your life left, right? Just on average on lifespan in the United States. And so you want to think about that transition being predictive of your later health, your health in your 60s and your 70s and your 80s. So even if you're having symptoms that are more severe and you're listening to this, you don't have to be like, oh my God, Dr. Aviva said now I'm at more risk for breast cancer and dementia. It's more like, okay, pay attention to this. Don't just take it for granted. Don't just let it be. The other really important thing is I mentioned menstrual irregularities being really common, and then your period stops. If your period has stopped for a year, you have not had any blood because you have any bleeding, even if it's like scant, it starts over. But if you bleed after that year, then that can be a sign that your endometrial or uterine lining has gotten too thick. And that can be a symptom also of endometrial cancer. It's much more rare, but any bleeding after you actually enter menopause should be a risk. If you're more than just a little bit forgetful or when your hormones don't level out, You become more forgetful. That can be a problem with your cognitive function. If you are significantly losing sleep to the point that it's affecting your focus during the day or your safety or your driving, that can be an issue. So you want to look at all these different things. Some amount of weight gain is actually normal in menopause. But you want to be careful that you're not becoming pre-diabetic or developing metabolic syndrome. So it's all kind of a spectrum of a little bit normal a lot maybe bothersome and a lot a lot definitely check it out
1: and who is your partner who is supposed to be your partner on this ride is it your ob is it your general practitioner i felt confused in that even though you know yeah. i'm in this world but dealing with my postpartum hormones and just wanting to check them out it was like you know Is it my general practitioner or do I ask my OB to check my hormones for me? It kind of feels confusing where it's much more clear if you're dealing with pregnancy, who you call. So I guess my question is who and then what are some of the resources that women have during these times?
2: Yeah. So ideally, you would be able to call on your primary care provider. Maybe your family doctor has cared for you since you were in your 20s and now you're in this menopausal arc and it'd be great if they could keep caring for you. Or maybe it's your OB-GYN or your internist. But statistically, 90% of all medical providers, including OB-GYNs, have had zero, 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 zero training in women's menopausal concerns oh and needs. That's so terrible. turning to our OB-gyns and our family doctors is not necessarily The most optimal place to turn. The other thing, you know, there's this expression if all you have is a hammer, then you see everything as a nail. And menopause, when it is taught about, is really taught about in relationship to hormone therapy and very little else. And when it's taught, it's taught as if it's more like a hormonal deficiency, which it's not. And then the deficiency treatment is hormone therapy. So Medicine being the hammer, seeing everything as a disease and everything to be treated with medication tends to turn toward medication and then for certain things, surgery like uterine fibroids. So I actually think it's optimal to actually look toward women's health nurse practitioners and certified nurse midwives who provide full-spectrum work. So certified nurse midwives and women's health nurse practitioners are trained in the full gamut of women's healthcare. They don't do surgery. Our training in medicine may be a little bit more intensive in certain areas, but they are very well prepared to understand the natural arc of women's life cycles and are much more apt to see these as part of normal physiologic changes that we go through. They're also more likely to be women themselves and maybe possibly somewhere in that arc of the journey. They tend to be less oriented toward just prescribing medicines and more open toward an integrative approach. So if you can find a WHNP or CNM who does full scope, that is a golden way to go some naturopathic physicians if they're licensed in your state and have come through a four-year naturopathic college who specialize in women's health may also be appropriate though maybe more apt to jump onto things like bioidentical hormones you can also find an ob-gyn or a family doctor or an internist who has made it their business like myself to be
1: knowledgeable about and provide menopause care so sometimes it's just asking the questions i mean i feel sad Hearing all of this, that you know, most practitioners are not trained, but I guess thinking back to both puberty and pregnancy, <laughs> it's a bit I, the same, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, like I guess mm-hmm. on one hand, at least it's dependable, and <laughs> you really do as a woman, I feel like, have to do the work to find the people who you can trust with your care. And it goes as deep as, you know, to the literature and the studies. Most of the studies are done on men. In this moment in time where we're talking about menopause more, are you seeing that reflected in the literature and the studies? There's more literature coming out right
2: now because anytime something is a hot topic, people are going to invest more of their time yeah. and attention into it. But you're right to draw the parallel. And with puberty, we're kind of excited because we're becoming women, right? Even though it's scary and there are some changes, we're like,
1: "Mm, maybe not so fun. But overall, we're excited. But it's still pathologized. Like, I was like, oh, I have a couple cramps. And they were like, oh, here's your birth control.
2: Exactly. And then when we're becoming mothers... It's a big change, but
1: we have motherhood
2: to look forward to. It's exciting. Mm -hmm. But when you go into menopause, what is our culture telling us is ahead of us to look forward to? And much like with puberty, we're kind of put on the pill for every symptom by our doctors. The same thing happens with hormone replacement therapy. It's basically the menopausal equivalent of the pill. So there's not a lot of new research coming out. There's still a lot of confusion. For example, I remember when I was writing my textbook, Botanical Medicine for Women's Health, that was like around 2010 that I did the first edition. Depression was not considered a symptom of menopause. So a lot of women in menopause experience depression. And what the literature has basically said is that, oh, it's really a sign of just being in midlife. But it's not just a sign of being in midlife. It's also a sign of losing sleep going through physical changes that can be disconcerting, more inflammation, changes in blood sugar, because that's another thing that can happen. And it does happen in menopause. When estrogen shifts, our blood sugar can go up. We can become more insulin resistant. And so a lot of these changes aren't really acknowledged and the literature isn't as up to date as it needs to be about what women are really experiencing. And it's almost like this disconnect, right? It reminds me of like teething and fevers. The medical thing is babies teething don't get fevers. But every mother who has a baby teething knows they see fevers in their babies more, right? They seem to be happening at the same time. So it's sort of like, what's true? Is it the lived experience or just what we're being told?
1: And what would you say is what women have to look forward to? after menopause from a more, I guess, evolutionary, like clinical lens, which is what you said, like through puberty, you're like, oh, I have my womanhood now. And through, you know, pregnancy, it's like, oh, I'm a mother now. Well, first of all, I can wear white pants any day I want to. <laughs> <thing you're> <laughs>
2: now I'm like, I really am like the carefree, you know, but don't need a pad. Uh, <laughs> reminds me of that Jennifer Lopez though. I don't know if you've ever seen that white pants thing, the white pants video. It's hilarious. It's like, I've got my white pants on. (laughs) So that is actually really fun. And not having the cyclic ups and downs. Like at first, I actually kind of missed that intense surge of energy around ovulation and even missed my period. I mean, my moon time was with me since I was 12 years old. But once you settle out after it, there's a really nice even level of emotions that I think allows us to focus both inwardly and outwardly in a whole new way on our passions and on our work and on the things, again, that legacy, what's important to us with a certain amount of freedom. The other thing I think evolutionarily is that we're at a stage in our lives right now where we're not tending little children. I mean, many women are because of, you know, getting pregnant later, but even women who are having their babies in their late 30s, or early 40s are often having tweens by the time they're in menopause. But I think that sort of that inner shift toward not tending tiny ones anymore really does open up a lot of bandwidth and cognitive space. The other thing I think that's really powerful is, you know, I have 57 years of lived experience. And I was interviewing Ellen Pompeo a few months ago for my podcast. And she said, you know, in your 30s, you kind of start to feel like you know a lot. In your 40s, you definitely do know a lot. By the time you reach your mid-50s, there's not a lot that you haven't experienced, seen, or heard. So in a way, there's just this really big perspective on life and a lot less fear and anxiety about the what could happen. You know, you've kind of gone through a lot at this point in this stage of evolution. And then from a bigger perspective, when we actually look at the studies on evolutionary biology, there seem to be some really powerful things that happen in terms of a woman's role in a traditional society as a the wisdom person. So I talk in this manuscript I'm working on right now on menopause about wisdoming, right? There's this idea of wisening, like getting older and shrunk, and I'm talking about it as wisdoming. We have so much to share, so much of that perspective, so much greater ease and confidence. And also I think with that ability to be the wise person in the community. You and your kids not being as young and dependent on you, you have a freedom to kind of not give as many fucks, frankly, about (laughs) what people think about you. So from a politically active standpoint or a socially active standpoint or being really outspoken without fear of something happening, like when my kids were little, I was an illegal midwife. I literally had to have people in my neighborhood on call should I get arrested? And like, this was a literal reality of my life. And I remember this woman I knew who's now long past, but she was in her 80s. She was a mentor of mine. And she said, just wait until you're in your 50s and 60s and you can do this with complete freedom and no fear. Mm. And it really is true. I wasn't fearful then because I was on a mission and felt like what I was doing was really important, but there was that awareness. And now it's like, Mm. my kids are grown, and I can kind of say what I need to say. And that's a really powerful place of leadership to be. And you know what else? I was thinking about this yesterday. So I was talking with my team about where I am in my space in the world and how I'm at a place in my work evolution where I can kind of be a big sister mentor to other women coming along. So rather than when you're younger and like when we look at primates, for example, which we're not as far from as we think, female primates are, they battle for territory. They battle for available Males. And I think some of that kind of territoriality shows up sometimes in certain cultural aspects of being a woman in the workplace because we're afraid of limited resources. We have competition in other women for a promotion or whatever it is, or for available partners. But once you reach a certain place, you realize you're not as vulnerable that way either. So you kind of can lend a hand up. And admire and support and nurture other people in your space without feeling like, oh, that's competition or, oh, that person's going to get some. Like, you're good with that. You want that. You want to elevate all women. It's powerful. I love that. It's so fun. It's so fun to just be able to say, yeah, I'll write that book forward for you or, like, (laughs) I'll, you know, support you in this. It's really
0: nice. You know, people come to us all the time asking about, what is the fountain of youth. So I love to talk about what's the difference between a grape and a raisin. And the difference is water. The grape is filled with water and hydration and the raisin isn't. And so our Sakara Beauty Water Drops are ionic trace minerals that help your body absorb water better than just pure water alone. So these water drops contain all the major electrolytes plus trace minerals to keep your cells hydrated on a better level. I love to put our beauty water drops in every glass of water that I drink. I can really tell the difference when I'm properly hydrated and when I'm not. I really see it in my skin. They say that focus and attention is really
1: connected to hydration your brain is made up of so much water that even a small change in hydration levels can change your brain composition. So there's a
0: reason like our parents were always like, You're not feeling well, drink some water. Not just for your skin, but for your brain, for your energy, for your joints, your muscles, your tissues, and other places within your body that we want nice and moist as well. I knew you'd go there with but- had to. For all my perimenopausal women out there. For sure. Go get your drops. You can find more details on Saqqara.com and enjoy 20% off your first two-pack of our Beauty Water Drops with code POD. That's Saqqara.com, s a k a r acom promo code POD, P-O-D, at checkout. I'd love to take us back for a minute and just... Can you explain to us what even happens to our bodies as we enter menopause from a hormonal standpoint? What's going on? Yeah. So before puberty,
2: our estrogen is basically minimal to non-existent progesterone, testosterone. Where we've got more growth hormone thyroid hormone, things like that. And then we hit puberty, those hormones come online. So we're producing progesterone, estrogen, and testosterone. And the form of estrogen we're producing is E2 or estradiol. As we get older, we're fertile. Ideally, we have lots of eggs, we're ovulating, getting our cycles every month. And then as we enter our perimenopausal years, that amount of eggs that we have that we're born with or the potential for eggs naturally starts to decline. That's our ovarian reserve. It goes down. And our production of estradiol goes down because our ovaries aren't producing it as much and then eventually basically not at all. Instead, we start producing estrone, which is a less potent form of estrogen and that binds in different ways to our estrogen receptors. So the estradiol that we've been producing basically since we were 12 or 14 or 16, whenever we started getting our first cycle, all the way till... Menopause makes us feel juicy. It makes our breasts grow. It gives us nice curvy hips. It feeds our brain. It keeps our bones strong. It keeps our vaginal tissue lush and lubricated. It just kind of creates this juicy flow and it manifests in many, many ways. It supports our heart function, it supports our metabolism, our energy. Our progesterone is being produced, and it helps us sleep really well. So when those start to go down, we start to see symptoms that happen in the systems that were kind of being lubricated and supported and protected, our joints. So estrogen actually lubricates or helps lubricate the spaces between our joints. So women may experience more joint aches and pains. So as that estrogen goes down, as that progesterone goes down, all the functions and the sort of buffers. And juicy feeling and ease that it gave us kind of goes down with it. It's not that we're not producing estrogen, though. We're still producing estrone. It's not that we're producing no progesterone or no testosterone. It's just much less. So our hormones are much more around our thyroid hormone, although that starts to shift also in menopause. So as these things are
0: happening, just the signs and symptoms of those things start to show up. And Where does the weight gain come from in all of this?
2: This is a really interesting question and one of my favorite topics. So in full transparency, I have basically been the same weight my entire adult life. Other than when I was pregnant and then breastfeeding, I'd go back down to that weight. And in the four years since I've been in menopause, I've gained eight pounds. I have not changed my exercise, my eating, anything. And it's funny because all the years that I've been talking about menopause to women for decades as a midwife, as a physician, as an herbalist, and I always talked about the importance of weight gain in menopause, that if it happens, and we're talking about like five, seven, eight, ten 10 pounds, what's happening is that, remember I said our ovaries aren't producing estrogen anymore, so the way our body produces estrogen or that estrone is actually in our adrenals and in our fat tissue. So in order to protect and buffer you from that declining estrogen and to keep your bones and your brain and your heart and all the other functions that estrone also supports healthy, your body actually puts on some weight so you have more fat to produce more estrogen. So interestingly, women who are underweight are also as at risk for more significant menopausal symptoms as women who are overweight because you don't have that estrogen. So you're more likely to have vaginal dryness, irritability, poor sleep, hot flashes, all the things, right? So you don't have some of the risks of high estrogen, but you do have some of the risks of not producing enough, including bone loss, dementia. So it's kind of interesting. So Back to my own weight gain, it's been interesting being in menopause because it's a little bit like labor and contractions. Like someone can prepare you for it intellectually, but until you experience it, it's still theoretical and then you're in it. So I will say being a woman in menopause and watching some of my facial features change or gaining the weight, it's not actually easy in a culture that is very thin driven and very ageist and very anti-aging oriented. And I think that it's just one of those things like when you're postpartum and you look in the mirror and you see that your belly's changed or you have stretch marks, there's that moment of, okay, I'm still me, but now I also... And changed. And there's the acceptance because there's the experience you've had that's led you there. But also there's that little bit of grieving because you are changed and you're having to accept changes. And I think menopause is a lot like that, at least for me, it is in so many of the women I talk with. There's that moment where someone said to me recently, she looked in the mirror and she said, wait, when did my mom or my grandmother show up, right? I mean, she still looks quite youthful, but it was her own inner perception of that. So there's a reckoning that happens Mm -hmm. that I don't believe happens in cultures that are more traditionally living, where aging is considered a gift, like you're 60 and you're still alive in a culture with, you know, a life expectancy of 55 and you look wise and you have experience that's valued, right? You hold the whole cultural history in your years of life. We don't have that here. So I think that the visual changes, the emotional changes we're going through, the fact that we're reckoning with being in a different phase of life, it's a beautiful, incredible thing. And you're also like when you become a mother and there are those moments that you're like, I wish I could just go out with my girlfriends right now. And you have that moment where you're grieving the loss of something while you're also in the gratitude and joy of something. And I feel like that to me is so deeply a part of menopause and the weight, the visual, the physical symptoms that you might have all kind of are reminders of that. It's quite a spiritual phase. It's quite a phase of learning new skills, learning to value new things. This has been another thing for me. I never realized how much I have subconsciously valued or assumed certain ease because of my physical appearance, that when you reach a certain age, and it's not just the appearance, but it's your hormones. They're not a calling card for people to come sniffing around, right? You're not invisible in any way, but you have a new cloak that allows you to be a little more stealth. It's kind of interesting.
1: It's so interesting. And I have a couple of friends who have been recently through menopause and I'm interested to hear your take on the libido part because Mm -hmm. my friends who have been through it, I think, are strangely or maybe not strangely feeling like sexier than ever when Mm -hmm. that's not the narrative that we're told. And I feel that way about motherhood. Like I've never felt sexier than I feel now. And growing up, it was like, oh, you know, once motherhood hits, you know. Sexiness is out the window. Yeah, it's
2: so different for every woman. It's so different. And, you know, I know so many breastfeeding moms who are just like, I am touched out. And that's for uh, sure. Yeah, that happens. But then others who are like, this is really juicy. And yeah. Yeah feels really voluptuous and sexy and wonderful. So it's really, really different. For me, I have been really fortunate. I haven't had low libido or vaginal dryness or any of those symptoms that so many of my patients struggle with. And for some, I've had people say it feels like sandpaper in there. I just have no desire and no interest. So some of it's hormonal, and definitely there are things that women can do about that, whether it's botanicals or hormone therapy or an antidepressant, like whatever is better for their wheelhouse and personal values and goals. Some of it is interesting. By the time a woman enters menopause, especially if she went into menopause naturally, we're not talking about medically caused menopause, but if she goes into menopause naturally in her, especially in her early 50s, chances are she's either been in a relationship for a minute or maybe long term. So sometimes it's like she's looking at her partner going um, Yeah, that's not who he was or she was when they were 30. It's much more likely in a heterosexual marriage from what I understand and have seen to have that like, ooh, because if you're with another woman, you're kind of aging similarly and there tends to be more compassion. But if you're with your partner and, you know, they had hair and were fit and all the things and now you're looking at them going, ooh, not so much, that can have an impact. And also the other thing is if you've been in a relationship whether it's with a long-term partner or multiple partners, and you've not been someone who can ask for what you need sexually. It's just not something you're comfortable with or you're with partners who aren't thinking about your needs sexually or aren't responsive to your needs sexually. It can be hard to talk about what your new needs are. So, for example, a lot of women who are in menopause And also in long-term relationships, this goes for both of those together and independently, may not have the sexual drive, but have responsive libido. So for many women, they don't feel like getting things going, or they're not thinking about it, or they're not in the mood. But if their partner brings them a gift, or does something really kind, or massages their feet or initiates sex with a little more romance, they actually are very receptive and then respond to that receptivity. For a lot of women, they're just fatigued. You know, they're taking care of teenagers or older kids or younger kids. And now they're sandwiched between that and taking care of adult parents. And they're just burnt on like human contact. And so when they have that alone time, they very much want it to be alone time. And some women are fatigued because they're just not sleeping. You know, they're waking up four times a night. So they're just like, I got to go to sleep and see what sleep I can get. Or they're waking up one time a night for an hour and a half. And then for a lot of women, vaginal dryness is a really, really big libido crusher. So they may have the desire, but they don't feel like they can go anywhere. So so many variations on what's causing it.
0: What can women do if they're experiencing vaginal dryness as one of their symptoms? Yeah. And I know you can't treat and diagnose people over our podcast. Oh, I'm but happy to share. <laughs> yeah.
2: So, I mean, there are a number of different things. So certainly hormone replacement therapy is one. And so are you in favor of HRT? Oh, I'm in favor of whatever works that a woman is educated on the pros and cons of that meets her values and is, relatively safe. So hormone replacement therapy is never my first go-to in my practice unless someone comes to me already desperate. They're like, Dr. Aviva, I haven't slept in six months and I need to sleep. And then I'm like, okay, well, let's try some progesterone while we're bringing some botanicals and other things on board. And then we can wean that off because you're not supposed to stay on those hormones indefinitely. Mm -hmm. Or like, every time I have sex, I feel like there's wood rubbing against sandpaper. And it's like, all right, well, let's try a little bit of transdermal or vaginal suppository estrogen, you know, or they're just their moods are horrible or they're just struggling. Also, there are medical indications. So they're having bone loss or their symptoms are really severe, like they're having really severe hot flashes. But I always try to start with a natural approach first because it's always going to be I mean, the tried and true natural approaches are generally going to always be safer. So I might use Vitex or Chaseberry for sleep and mood and hot flashes. I just had a patient write me yesterday. I put her on Vitex about a month ago and she's like, my hot flashes are gone. And she was really struggling with them. And is that something you
0: can be on long term?
2: Vitex, you can be on long-term, but you you might not need it anymore. So after being on it for 6 or 12 months, you can taper down, see if you're still having symptoms without it. There are also some great topicals. There's something called hyaluronic acid, which I'm sure you two have heard of. And that is a wonderful vaginal lubricant and suppository, or you can use it as a cream. There are many different ways to use it. So do you just take your face serum and... Serums, you can use it as a lube during sex that actually not only acts as a lube, making things more slippery and moist, but has been shown just the way using estrogen does to actually help rebuild some of that vaginal lushness, if you will, that vaginal tissue plumpness. So I'm a huge fan of using products that have hyaluronic acid in it. You can use lubricants that are made of coconut oil and herbs. You just need to be thoughtful with any of the oil-based ones because if you are having sex with partners and don't know about sexually transmitted infections that they might have or do know, the oil-based products will erode condoms. So that's just one thing to be aware of. So you can use hyaluronic acid, but some of the oil-based ones, you want to be careful with condoms. But those are great approaches. For hot flashes and night sweats, Vitex is great
1: also. And there is a big difference, though, between hormone replacement therapy and bioidentical hormones versus synthetic. So do you have like preferences if you are, if somebody does feel desperate? Yeah. So there aren't really that significant differences. And what I always say to my
2: patients are hormones are hormones are hormones. They all have the same risks. So bioidenticals are often sourced from natural sources and synthetics are synthetic. But once they're in your body... They do exactly the same thing. They bind to your hormone receptors. They increase your estrogen. They increase your progesterone. So the way I talk about the difference between the synthetic or conventionals and the bioidenticals is a little bit like, let's say you go to Bloomingdale's and you buy a dress and you just buy the dress off the rack. And you're like, yeah, this pretty well. It fits me okay. Maybe it doesn't fit you exactly perfectly. Or you go and buy that dress and you take it to a tailor and the tailor fits it to your body. So the bioidenticals can be tailored to your specific needs. They can be custom fit to you by adjusting up or down the estrogen up or down the progesterone, you can add in some testosterone. Whereas the conventionals come into sort of these fixed doses and fixed proportions, or you take them separately. So in my practice, it really depends on where someone's at. If they've been on hormones that are bioidentical and they're coming to me and they're doing well on those, I'll typically just match those. If they haven't started anything before, the standard medical wisdom and also the North American Menopause Society actually recommends starting with conventional approaches first and then switching to bioidenticals only if the conventional medications aren't working because the conventional medications are more standardized. They're coming from a limited number of pharmaceutical companies, whereas the compounded pharmacies are privately owned. They're all over the country, different cities, different states. So they're formulating from a variety of different products. So you have a little bit less control over the quality, and what's in them. So I typically work with Women's International Pharmacy. To me, that is the one that's been around the longest and I consider the most reliable when I do use bioidenticals. And I do, I use them in my practice. And the thing with hormone therapy is, it is really important to remember that hormones are hormones are hormones because I have had patients who have gone to integrative doctors, have gone to naturopaths, have gone to functional medicine MDs and other types of prescribing doctors who have put them onto bioidenticals saying that they were more natural and safer. They're not safer. They're the same. And I've had women who have then started to have severe vaginal bleeding and come to me for that, including women who have been told by their doctor that they now need to possibly have a hysterectomy. So it's really important to me whenever I hear somebody telling me, oh, my doctor said bioidenticals are safer or more natural. I'm like, run. That is not a practitioner that anybody should see because they should know that that's not true. When bioidenticals or conventional hormone replacement or menopausal replacement therapy is used as it's called now, it should be done in the lowest possible dose in the most appropriate forms. So like the least risky form of estrogen is using it transdermally. The second least risky is using it transvaginally like a suppository or a cream. And then the most risky is taking it Orally, and sometimes bioidenticals are prescribed primarily orally. So, knowing that is really important, and then knowing that you shouldn't take it indefinitely. Like, there are ranges of times that it's safer, but once a woman's been on it for like 10 years or past the age of 60, the risk does go up. So, I always take women off of it and try to find alternatives, whether other types of pharmaceuticals or botanicals and supplements and lifestyle that work. So it's actually a lot more nuanced than we're led to believe. And you guys know me. I mean, I'm the woman who's had like three of my four babies at home, me and my husband. I am not super conventional here when it comes to healthcare, (laughs) But when it comes to hormones, I think we really need to be because they do have risks.
1: Yeah. And all of this just makes me think about how much Pressure we put on women and society to not only kind of push on through these hormonal changes, but downright like rewind them, you know, yeah. like stay youthful. And that kind of lack of honoring and reverence for women in their older ages. I yeah. am such a fan of Golden Girls. I've been watching it since I was little. It just so oh, like, I guess I love that. Love this show now. When you look back, all those women were in their 50s when the show started. Yeah. And now if you even just look at whatever the new sex in the city is, these women are actually in their early 60s. And they're supposed to look like they're in 40. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I've been listening to Julia Louis-Dreyfus' podcast,
2: Wiser Than Me, and she's interviewing women who are like Diane von Furstenberg and Jane Fonda. And these are women who are in their 70s and 80s, and they're kicking it. You know, Isabel Allende is 80, and she was talking about her new husband and how she uses chocolate blueberry CBD for relaxation for her sex life. And it was just like, so refreshing. I'm looking at these women going, they are amazing and sexy and smart. And I'm like, I don't know. I think when I was in my twenties and thirties, because I was a midwife, I've always had reverence for women in these wisdom years, in these silver years, but my appreciation for them now is so great. I just love hearing these stories and, you know, like listening to Jane Fonda, Julia Louis-Dreyfus asked her what's the most important gift of wisdom that she could give younger women. And she said, stay strong physically, like stay strong, stay flexible. She said all of the working out, like all of that now at 80 something, I can bend over and pick up my grandchild. Yeah, they're standing in their power, which I think is the sexiest. Absolutely. And you know, I had this revelation. One day I was in the shower. This was maybe four years ago, three years ago. And I was washing and loofahing and doing all the things. And I was looking at my body and just noticing some changes in my body and not like a lot, but a little bit. And I remember having that sort of self-judgy thought. And I thought, oh my God, if at 54... I'm still judging my body. Like, when does this stop? And when does the body love start? And that was a huge turning point for me. And I realized when we're in our 20s, our 30s, our 40s, we judge ourselves. And then you get to like 40 and you're like, oh, my 20s, you get to 50, oh, my 40s. And I realized like at 80, 57 is going to feel really young. Like to someone who's 67, 57, you look and you go, that's really young. So I feel like it's partly also about not thinking about age. Diane von Furstenberg talked about how she doesn't ask people how old they are at any age. She says, how long have you
1: lived? And to me, that's such a powerful message. Mm. I love her. Talk about a woman that embraces like her own individuality. She she yeah, She's so amazing. Well, we love you so much. Thank you for all of your wisdom and in so many ways being such a mentor to us oh thank you i love being here with you again so we'd like to end with light work so just some homework to share with everyone to maybe work on some of the things even that you mentioned today like loving our bodies or whatever comes to you
2: yeah i hope that everyone who's listening right now when you're done listening will take a minute sit down light a candle. Get out a piece of paper or a notebook and write a letter to yourself now as if you were 80 and had all this. So however old you are, write a letter to yourself as if you were 80 years old looking back with what wisdom and what love and what self-compassion and forgiveness and power that you would say, here, you already own this and live by this.
1: Mm. Chills. Love it. So powerful. Thank you later. so much, Aviva oh, Love best. you. Both. Love you so much. Thank you.
2: Mm-hmm.